Hello again. Good morning. Hey, there was uh, an additional announcement I want to let you all know about before we get into our lesson this morning. Saturday, October 20th, Awana Fishing Outing Tournament. There's fish in Arizona? <laughs> There's a lake? So Randy's got this spot picked out. He went last year. The kids caught a whole bunch of fish, but it was cold and miserable. I doubt you're going to have that problem this year. Saturday, October 20th, leaving the church at 6, coming back at 6. If you want any additional data, our usher in the lobby, Randy, just ask for him. He will help you out. And there's an extra flyer I've got here if you want it. All right, we're starting a whole new section this morning. We're going into the book of Daniel. So uh, you can open up your Bibles there if you want to, but I'll have our passages of Scripture up on the board. And if you can bring up the chart for me, Nick, I would appreciate that. Just to remind you, Daniel... All right, let, let me give you a little bit of history. Bear with me here. We've been going through the Old Testament, so most of this you, you'll know. But the children of Israel, as you know, divided into two countries, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel immediately went into idolatry, and God kept warning her, continue this and you will be destroyed. Not just idolatry, as if that wasn't bad enough, but murder and sexual sins and lying and cheating. Basically, anything bad you can think of, they were constantly doing it. So God sent the Assyrians and destroyed Israel. And God said, now you've seen what I've done to Israel, Judah. You keep up what you're doing, and I'm going to do the same to you. And we didn't learn the lesson, and God sent the Babylonians against us. So the Assyrians went against Israel, the Babylonians went against Judah. But at first, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, did not destroy Judah. He came in, took some hostages, set up some taxes, and said, pay your taxes, follow me, and I'll leave you alone. He took as hostage Daniel. He took a whole bunch of people, but he took Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whom you might know better as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They went off to Babylon while Judah was still functioning. Now, while they were there, they went through the training ship. Training ship, that's a good word. The training slash discipleship program. They were kind of like royal hostages, but the idea was they were going to be trained to serve the king of Babylon. So the first thing is they, they had to plump them up and get them fat and happy. But the food that the Babylonian was trying to feed Daniel and his three friends wasn't kosher. And Daniel said we don't eat this stuff. And he said, well, if you don't eat it, you're going to die because my head's on the chopping block and I'm not going to let you take off my head. He said, well, what is it that you need from us? We need you to gain weight and be healthy. Do this. Let us just eat, you know, vegetables. Let us eat beans and rice, stuff like that. And if we're not looking good after a few weeks, then we'll do your thing. But at least give us a shot to prove that we'll do fine. And sure enough, they did, and they did fine. Interesting thing about that is, remember, the children of Judah were being dispersed because of their sin. Well, Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael were keeping kosher. They were obviously three of the faithful. And we're going to learn a little later that they were definitely four of the faithful. So they get educated, and they find a place in the king of Babylon's palace administration. And then something amazing happens. God sends the king of Babylon a dream. 
Now, we all have dreams. This wasn't one of those kind of dreams. This was a special dream, a unique dream, a dream sent by God. Just like he sent to Pharaoh in ancient Egypt and Joseph trans, uh, interpreted, now he sends one to the king of Babylon. And it really troubled him. He woke up disturbed. And he called together all his wise men, his astrologers and astronomers and his magicians and his counselors, his scholars, and he pulled them all together in a room and he said, listen, I've had the most bizarre dream and it's really bothering me. I need you guys to tell me the meaning of it. And the guy said, no problem. Tell us the dream, we'll tell you the meaning. The king said, oh, no. You can make something up. How am I going to know if it's true? You tell me my dream. Then I'll know you can tell me my meaning. Tell you your dream? Who in the world could possibly tell you what you dreamt last night? It's impossible. King said, you do it or you die. And if you do it, I'll reward you. So now you know the story we're stepping into. Let me read to you from the text. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled. He could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. And the king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, I will have to cut you into pieces. Yikes! And your house is turned into piles of rubble. Have a nice day. See you in an hour. You're one of the magi. What would you do? What can you do? You know you're going to die. And within a few hours, you're going to be cut into pieces because you can't do the impossible. Be kind of like me coming up to you saying, okay, I want you all to fly from here to Mount Lemon by yourselves. No aircraft. Just fly. Go. And if you don't, I'm going to cut you to pieces. You, you, you just know you're dead because there's no way you're going to fly from here to Mount Lemon. People don't fly. We fall, but we don't fly. So they're, they're, they're going to die. Problem is, Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are also advisors to the king. They're going to be executed too. So the astrologers answered the king, there's not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. What the king asks, it's too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So word gets to Daniel. Whether he was in that room or not, I don't know. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I don't know how faithful these guys were. That is, how strong in their faith they are. Remember, Peter was imprisoned, and a bunch of believers were praying for him to be released. And he, go, he goes and knocks on the door, and Rhoda answers the door, and he says, it's me, Peter, and she doesn't believe he's out. She's praying for him to be released. God answers the prayer, but she doesn't believe it's being answered. I understand that kind of faith. <laughs> That's half a mustard seed. I get it. These guys are praying for a miracle. They need to know what a king dreamt the previous night. 
or they're dead. Can you imagine how passionate their prayer was that night? During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. So Daniel went to the king. And the king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel's response, it's stunning to me. Had it been my head on the block, and I knew I was going to be cut to pieces, and the king asked me to do something, and God enabled me to do it, and then the king comes and says, can you do it? My answer would be, yes, I can do it. Listen to what Daniel says, though. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. Daniel, shut up. <laughs> You're going to get killed. Just tell him what he wants to hear. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Daniel was brave. He didn't lead with yes. He had a good sentence in there that could have gotten him killed first. Nobody can do this, king. But God can do it. And now he took this opportunity to witness for God, to stand up and say something for God. You know, just as an aside, how many of you have ever seen an amazing answer to prayer or a miracle in your life? Can I see your hand? Wow, almost everybody in the room. Wow. Next time, use it as an opportunity to testify for God. In fact, use some of the past ones. Tell your friends. You know, when, when people tell you, why do you believe in God? You know, don't go to the ontological, teleological reason you believe in God. Say, I'll tell you why I believe in God. Let me tell you about the miracle that happened in my life. Oh, and by the way, my pastor last week asked for hands for everybody who's seen a miracle, and almost everybody's hand in the church went up. Oh, God's alive. He's real. Maybe you can't see him, but he's there. Use it as an opportunity to testify, just like Daniel did. So, now Daniel says, there is a God. He's given me the answer. Let me tell you your dream. So I can imagine the king's on the edge of his seat. Is Daniel really going to tell him what he dreamt? It's never been done before, as far as this king knew. And then Daniel starts. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue. Now the king knows it's true. That's exactly what the dream was about. Daniel is for real. His God is for real. Yes, yes, tell me more. There stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them to dust. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were broken to pieces. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And the king's nodding his head. Yes, it was. Now let me tell you what it means. I'm going to stop there for a minute. Why is this story in the Bible? You know, we've got all of human history in a book this big. You know God intentionally chose every word that's in there to get the biggest bang for the buck and give us everything we need to know in that book. Why did this make the cut? 
I mean, first of all, I find it fascinating. I love the book of Daniel. It's one of the coolest books in the Bible. All the things that happened, it's amazing. But why did God put it in the book? Why did he even give Nebuchadnezzar a dream in the first place? Why? Well, there is no verse in the Bible that tells me why. So all I can do is speculate. So I'm going to give you my speculation, which may be totally off base. But here's what I think. Now, first of all, Daniel's name, Daniel. Don is a Hebrew word for judge. E is my judge, and L is God. God is my judge, or some say is God my judge. But basically, it's a word for God and judge, which is an interesting name because if you'll remember, this is the time that God is judging Judah and has dispersed the people off to Babylon. And why? What was one of their primary sins? Idolatry. Now, take all these Jewish people and implant them into a foreign nation. These men are faithful Jews, good followers of God. And what's God going to do with them while they're there? Make them farm crops? Or have them teach Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians about God? This was so Nebuchadnezzar could learn about the God of Israel. This was so that the Babylonians could be witnessed to. I don't think this happened for Daniel's benefit. I think this happened for their benefit, so that God could have a testimony in ancient Babylon to who he was. So in a sense, it was like, Daniel, go to Babylon and introduce me to these people. Introducing God, that's what I'm actually calling this morning's lesson. So what do they know about God? Well, as far as we know, nothing. So what do you tell people about God? Well, you've got to start off with how amazing he is. Well, this is the only God in the whole pantheon in Babylon that could tell somebody what they dreamt. So already, they're very interested in the God of Israel because he's the only one that's really there. He's the real God, the alive God. And then Daniel shows him by telling him this story that God knows all things. He knows what was in the king's dream, and it's a prophecy, and he even knows the prophecy. So what do they know about God? Well, that God's powerful, that God's alive, that God knows all things and that God works with people. All that just at this introduction. So in introducing God, Daniel, throughout the next several chapters, and all the experiences we see, they're going to know all about the God of Israel, at least the key points. Now, what makes God, God? If you're going to introduce God to somebody who's never heard of God before, what are you going to tell them? Say, well, God is loving. Great. So God's like your mom. No, 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 no. What makes God different than your mom? Well, God's nice. Oh, so he's like the guy at Walmart who greets me when I come in. No, 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 no. Is there anything that sets God apart that's totally unique? Because if there's not, then we don't have a God. Those things that make him totally unique are what define him as being God. There's several things. I'm going to share with you this morning five. First one, God's all-powerful, omnipotent. You've heard the omnis. That's the first one, omnipotent. God is all-powerful. Second, he's sovereign. Power means he has strength. Sovereignty means he's in control. God determines everything that's going to happen and makes sure it does. God is in complete and total control of everything. Third, he's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at once. If... I see what's going on in the fifth 
pew. I'm not omnipresent to that pew. I have no control over it. I'm not even there. I couldn't catch something that dropped. Omnipresent isn't that God is just aware of what's going on. Omnipresent is that God is actually there where it's going on. God is in just as much control and present anywhere in the universe as he is in heaven right now. The only difference between right here and right now in heaven is in heaven he doesn't hide his glory. Here he does. I don't see God, but he's here. I don't feel God, but he's just as much in control here as he is there. That's what omnipresent means. He's everywhere at once. He's also eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. Now, we're given, when we follow Yeshua, Jesus, we're given everlasting life. But that doesn't make us eternal because we have a starting point. God had no starting point, just like we'll have no ending point. And then fifth, he's omniscient. He knows everything. These are five things about God that are unique to him. What I want to do now with you is give you a verse for each one of those, one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. You know me, I do that all the time. I like to show how the Old Testament and New Testament teach the same thing, how they're united, that there's still one book. And so I'm going to just do exactly that. We're going to start with omnipotence. Old Testament, Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Omnipotence. You know, one of God's names in the Bible is the Almighty. Well, that gives you a clue right there to what the Bible says about him. He's got all power. He created the heavens and the earth. How did he do that? If you gave me a piece of paper... I could fashion an airplane. Now, I don't believe I'm creating an airplane. One's been made before, and I'm using borrowed parts. But I can make an airplane. And it took me all of, what, 30 seconds or something to make an airplane. It's pretty cool. It took me longer to do that than it did for God to create the heavens and the earth. <laughs> God spoke and it was done. How did he do that? Stunning. You know, with our new lighting system here, it's good on camera and it may look good on that end, but up here it's bright. It's hard to see. But it's not so bad because you step outside and this Tucson sun will just smite you. I got a hat on the front pew because I don't like walking from this building to that building without a hat on because the sun is just nasty. It's how many miles away is that sun? Thanks, 93 million miles. <laughs> Just had that in the top of your head. It's so bright I can't even look at it. And they say the sun is a mediocre-sized star in a universe filled with so many we can't count them. And God just said, be there. And they were. That is power that you and I can't even begin to fathom. And it's not like it even made him tired to do it. And he sustains it. It's his energy that powers the stars. And it doesn't, you know, oh, I need a break. God is amazing. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. 
Matthew, New Testament, 1926. Yeshua, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God is amazing. That's different than the gods of ancient Greece or ancient Rome or ancient Babylon. Their gods were piscola gods. Their gods were just nothing. It was funny, we, we had, went to a, a battle and we beat the Philistines or whoever they were. And they said, well, that's because you fought in the valley and yours are the gods of the valley, but ours are the gods of the mountains. What, you've got local deities? Your, your god's domain is right here? <laughs> well, that's some god you got. You, you got a nice little river god? Come on, our god rules over the heavens and the earth. They knew nothing about a god like this. He's omnipotent. He's also sovereign. Listen to what the Old Testament says in Psalm 135. I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and in all their depths. God is in control. Now, that raises a lot of questions. If God is in control, why do bad things happen? That's a lesson for another day. And there's no easy answer to that. But God is in control. That means, rather than us complaining and griping about the circumstances, praise God that he's in control. Ask him to reveal to you what your part should be during those circumstances and ride the wave. Enjoy the ride. You know, we spent a lot of money to go to Disneyland this weekend. They have this ride at California Adventure called the Tower of Terror. I know why now. <laughs> I didn't when I got in the thing, but I do know now. Whoa! That was fun. We did it again and again and again. What is it with you? We like getting scared, don't we? So we pay good money to go on a ride that terrifies us. Well, the Tower of Terror drops you. Just says, gravity doesn't count anymore. You're in a big box, and it lets go. It's like an elevator with no ropes attached. Whew. Scary. Let's do that again. Let's do that again. But how many people sitting on a jumbo jet that's crashing go, let's do that again? It's the same feeling. In fact, the jumbo jet's more fun because it lasts longer. You get to go from 30,000 feet, not just 100 feet or whatever. Why don't you have fun on the jumbo jet? It's the same feeling. I'll tell you why. Because you don't think God is in charge of the jumbo jet. That's why. We get that stark moment of terror. We're going to die. So? Everybody does. If this is the way God wants to take me out, enjoy the ride. Whee! But we don't. It's funny, but it, there's some truth to it, too. God is in control. Let him do what he does best and enjoy the ride. New Testament. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Now there is one passage of scripture that makes the airplane ride and all this stuff work for me. 
all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. If that's God's plan for me, if that's the best way that things will work out to good, I'll take the ride. You know, in our country, it seems like our greatest value is prolonging life. We'll do anything to live another day. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't have a death wish. Nobody wants to die. Nobody enjoys dying. But is that really the greatest virtue, staying alive as long as you can? Would you give your life to do something noble and wonderful, knowing that you're going to die anyway? So to me, it's like, okay, I can die and serve no good purpose, or I could die and serve a great purpose, or, and, I can live and serve a great purpose, God, or I can live and serve no purpose, me. God is omnipotent, God is sovereign, and God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Jonah learned this lesson. He tried to run away from God. Duh. And he did it in a boat. I mean, really, that, I guess that's the best he had. But you'd realize if you got on the space shuttle and hit hyperdrive and flew to Pluto trying to get away from God, got out of the door, jumped onto the planet, and God said, man, it took you long enough. <laughs> Actually, he was sitting on the spacecraft with you the whole ride. <laughs> we can't get away from God. There's an interesting, I'm not going to call it a play on words, just a thought. It says, if, in this version, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. The King James says, if I go to hell, you are there. The Hebrew there is Sheol, the place where dead people go. So heaven is the highest place, Sheol is the lowest place. It's a, it's a contrast, that's all it is. But it does bring to mind, God is in heaven, is there a place where God's influence and power are not manifested? I think not. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is light to you. Now, jump to the New Testament, God's omnipresence. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. So, our astronauts are praying on the space shuttle? You think God's not there? How could he be there and here at the same time? How could he be a book of life in Calvary Chapel at the same time? Because he's God. He's not the God of the river. He's not some piscal little God who can only exert his power in one little zone. God is everywhere always at once. That's why I worship him. That's why I follow him. He's awesome. Anything less than that, I couldn't follow. But God I can trust because he's just beyond amazing. And he's eternal. Oh, by the way, um, for his omnipresence, I, I didn't write this one down until after, but it's my favorite verse on it. It's from Jeremiah, and God says, do not I fill heaven and earth. That's the best way. God fills heaven and earth. All right, eternal. Psalm 90. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. From everlasting 
to everlasting. You are God. Now, some people say, how can that be? How can God be forever? I don't know. But he says he is. And he's smarter than I am. And he's honest. So if he says he's everlasting, he is. Some people would say they don't believe in God because they can't picture God being eternal. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. You're saying you will only believe in a God that you can understand? That's, that's going to be a small God. Don't you want a bigger God than that? If I believed in a God I could understand, he'd fit in my pocket. Well, actually, that wouldn't work either because I don't understand how this works. <laughs> this thing is cool. It does amazing things. I don't know how it does them, but it does. So my God would have to be smaller than a cell phone and dumber than a smartphone if I had to understand everything he does and everything he's about and everything he's like. New Testament, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty, who is, who was, and who is to come. We mispronounce the word God. We say Jehovah or Yahweh. In Hebrew, we just say Adonai, which means Lord. We don't even try to pronounce his name. We don't know how. But in the chapter of the burning bush, Moses says, what's your name? And God says, I am that I am. That's what you shall tell the children of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That verb, I am, was turned into a proper noun for his name. What's God's name? The being one. That's his name, the one who is, was, and ever will be. He is the God that is. He's trying to let us know something about himself. He's eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. And he knows everything. He's omniscient. There's a, a big movement, actually, right now in Christianity. Um, it's, heretical, it's heretical. It's heretical. It's bad but it's influencing a lot of people, that God doesn't really know everything. He doesn't know what free people might do in the future. And I've forgotten why they believe it was necessary for them to believe that. But really? I can't believe that they believe that. Listen to what the Bible says about what God knows. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. How do I know that God knows everything? Because his understanding has no limit. How do I know that he understands what free people will be doing who aren't even born yet? Because of prophecy. There couldn't be prophecy if God didn't know what people were going to do. He knows exactly what they're going to do before they're even born. He said of Jeremiah, before you were even born, before, I knew you in the womb. God knows what he's doing, and he knows what you're doing before you even do it. He's God. He knows everything. New Testament, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. The Bible says he knows everything. There's a bunch of scholars writing books say he doesn't. Guess which one I'm going with? I'm going with the everything. So, Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, Hananiah, they're all brought to Babylon. And God decides to take the king of Babylon, whom he rose up, by the way, whom he used to discipline Israel, whom he gave the greatest kingdom the world had ever known, I think, at this point in history, to Nebuchadnezzar. And then he gave him a dream. And then he sent Daniel to interpret the dream so that Nebuchadnezzar 
the king of the biggest empire on the planet, could learn about the God of Israel. What did he learn? I've already pointed out several things he learned about him, that God interacts with human beings, that he's greater than all the other gods, that he knows all things, that he's sovereign. He was introducing God. As we go through the chapters of Daniel, we're going to be learning more and more about God by the way he interacts with Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Next week, or the week after, I should say, they're going to be told to commit idolatry. And they're going to say no. Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, I kill you. You do what I say or I kill you. I throw you in the furnace. And they say, whatever, dude, throw us in there, but we're not going to worship your idol. And you know how the story turns out. Same with the lion den. Do this or I kill you. This guy liked killing people, but never was able to kill Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, or Hananiah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Daniel tells him his dream, and then he interprets it. And most of that statue represents Daniel's and Nebuchadnezzar's future. Next week, we're going to look at the interpretation of the dream, of the statue, Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's future, and even our future is wrapped up in that statue. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, you are great. We acknowledge your sovereignty. We acknowledge that you are all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere at once. And we thank you that you are a loving God, that you care for us. What is man that you are mindful of us, or the son of man that you visit us? Even the highest of heavens cannot contain you, and you're interested in us. Thank you. Help us to be equally interested in you, to be faithful to you, to follow your son Jesus. Lord, you sent him to die for our sins, and so many people just don't care. Wake us up. Help us to care. And for those of us who know Jesus, who believe in him, please give us opportunities to share our faith. Yes, we can tell the miracles you've done. Give us more that we might have more to share, that we might bring many people into your kingdom, that we might do like Daniel did, introduce God. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Please bow your heads. I'll dismiss you with a benediction. May the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace.